You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Author and activist, historian and editor, journalist and critic. For more than 30 years, the renowned American writer Michael Pollan has been writing books and articles about the places where nature and culture intersects. On our plates, in our farms and gardens, and in our minds. My name is Susanna Karutza, and as director here, I'm extremely pleased to welcome Michael Pollan for the very first time to uh, us here at the House of Literature. Pollan has long been on our top list of writers that we would love to see on our stage. It can be difficult to summarize Pollan's writings in a few words. Like so many of the best writers, his work defies labels and categories. Still, the world's greatest food writer is a recurring phrase when talking about tonight's guests. As a writer, Pollan has tackled issues such as alienation from the natural world and moral dilemmas of everyday life. And at the same time, his books investigates complex layers and perspectives on nature and science, human identity, and history. His original voice has moved readers and critics where whatever subject he has written about. If it is gardening, as in Second Nature and the Botany of Desire, architecture and building in A Place of My Own, psychedelics, as in his most recent book, How to Change Your Mind, which is out in Norwegian now with the title Psychedelisk Renaissance, or Food Culture and Ethics of Eating, which is the subject of four of Poland's books. The Books of Food has also created his widely shared haiku, Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Tonight, Paul will give you some glimpses into this unique universe of food culture and food writing, and he will do so in conversation with another of his enthusiastic readers, our very own artistic director here at the House of Literature, Andreas Liebedelset, who is also the author behind an excellent book, Kjøkkenveien, Silence of the Chef, a book about food, work, and class. Please welcome them both to our stage tonight. Thank you very much. Welcome to the House of Literature. Thank you, Andreas. And to Norway. Yes, I just arrived time. today. First time in Norway. Looks like a nice country you have here. <laughs> Working on keeping it that way, yes? Yes. yes. Uh, I see a lot key. of people involved in that business actually in the room, as we speak. So it's great to have all of them here. Uh, and, uh, but my, I mean, my first concern tonight would be, I mean, you're, you are, you, your last book is about psychedelics. So uh, and then we, and we got the opportunity to invite you here. For an additional, you're speaking more about psychedelics tomorrow. Yes. Um, but then uh, we suggested we should talk about food as well. Are you still interested in food? Or is it all about mushrooms? You know, I still... Ev- no, no. I mean, I do like all kinds of mushrooms. Yeah. But um, I'm still eating three meals a day at least. Um, so I'm still interested in food. How can you not be interested in food? Um, yeah, so it's still <laughs> it's still something I'm interested in and may or may not write about again. I actually just finished a long piece on caffeine, mm-hmm. which is kind of occupies the space between food and drugs, mm-hmm. uh, coffee and tea especially. Um, I think in, in psychedelic renaissance, it's actually you refer to a scientist who 
yes. made it made it redefined from being a food to being to a, a drug. Yeah. yeah, Roland Griffiths. Yeah, he's one of the heroes of the of the psychedelic renaissance. And as it happened, before he started studying psilocybin, magic mushrooms, his he Flame was. Soap. Yeah. He, that, that, this was, he was the world's leading expert on caffeine. So actually, I got to interview him again for this. And uh, uh, so we do share a lot of interests. But no, food is still a concern. I'm still very involved in it as an activist and an advocate. Um, I still teach uh, people how to write about food. I, I, I operate a food fellowship. But in my mind, it wasn't such a radical departure to go from uh, food to psychedelics, although it might sound like that. My, the, the, the common core of my work is, is um, really my fascination with nature and our engagement with nature and how we have a relationship, a very powerful relationship with a set of other species, the ones that nourish us. But we also have, and, and, and we use plants and fungi, and they use us. Um, it's a two-way street. Um, we are manipulated uh, by plants in an in a co-evolutionary sense, um, in that they, they appeal to us. They figure out our desires and gratify those desires. And the ones that do that best are the, are the plants that have succeeded. I mean, the edible grasses, for example, are the great successes in the plant world that we, we've given over millions and tens of millions of acres to the edible grasses, to wheat and rice and corn. Um, and we work very hard for them in exchange. We, we make sure that the trees don't come back. We, we, we plow and we mow, and that's, that's what they want us to do because the trees threaten them. Shade threatens them. So, so I'm very aware of how we get manipulated by plants. Mm. And so, so, so feeding us is one of the important things they do for us. Um, and, but there are some other desires they satisfy, too. And one of them is uh, the desire to change consciousness. Um, so I, I see it all of, of a piece. Also, I'm, I'm fundamentally interested in health. And my, my writing about food is very much about health. The health of the individual, health of the soil, health of the environment. And, um, uh, and in the new work, I'm, I'm really focusing on mental health mm. to a large extent. Mm. So it's, it's all the same. Mm. And, you know, I, I was a little worried when I published this book, uh, which came out in the United States um, in 2018, that the people who'd been reading me about food would be disappointed. And, but it turns out that community is very interested in psychedelics, too. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Um, but you, um, uh, we're going to talk mostly about food, but uh, also about your writing. Uh, uh, which came first out of those two? Food or writing? Yeah. Well, I've been eating longer than I've been writing, <laughs> like most people. <laughs> I've been eating since day one. Um, I don't remember, but... Uh, you know, the writing grew out of gardening, actually, for me. Mm -hmm. uh, my first book, Second Nature, was about... I, I had started to garden, and we, we bought this... Uh, little piece of a dairy farm in uh, New England, about two hours outside of New York City, and we would go there on weekends, and then we, eventually we moved there. And I put in a big garden and started uh, confronting the challenges that gardeners and farmers confront, dealing with pests and, and, and uh, you know, the, the competitors for my crop, figuring out how to behave in the natural world without being destructive, yet nevertheless getting what we need from nature. And... Uh, 
And this drew me into this whole uh, environmental philosophy, you know, trying to figure out the, the proper attitude, the pro- proper ethics in nature. And, um, uh, and what I was gardening were, were vegetables, by and large. Um, and, uh, and so I, I became very interested in... Uh, I started reading about agriculture. I mean, it's very easy to move from gardening to agriculture because mm-hmm. they're the same issues. And um, so that's kind of... And, and so food became um, you know, more and more central. And my, my first book about food... Well, the book that's entirely about food, The Omnivore's Dilemma... Um, was, um, you know, was an attempt to, to answer a question, a very simple question that actually had gotten lost in American culture, which is where, where does our food come from? How is it grown? And I, I was um, writing these garden essays in, uh, in New England, uh, and they were growing out of my own experience in the garden uh, in this place we own in Connecticut. And I had this idea of uh, writing a piece about genetic engineering and GMO crops, which had, were brand new. This is in the late 90s. And I, and I didn't have a formed opinion at all of them. Uh, they sounded kind of cool and, um, at the time. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to grow some in my garden? Maybe Monsanto could give me some seeds. And I was very naive. And, um, but they weren't controversial yet. This is 1998. Mm. Um, they had just come on. And, and Europeans were upset, but Americans were not. Americans just thought, new innovation. Sounds good. And you wanted to try to grow them? Yes, I was going to. Yeah. yeah, and I did. I, I got some potatoes from Monsanto, and I planted them in my garden. And I, was, uh, and I started writing about them. And, and I went to Monsanto, and they were very open with me. They didn't see a journalist coming. They, um, well, I was a garden writer, right? I mean, who's more benign than a garden writer? Um, and I sent them some very selective examples of my work. And this is before the internet, so they couldn't search everything and really suss me out. And, um, uh, and so I went out west to see these farms where these potatoes, genetically modified potatoes, were being grown. And you have to understand, agriculture in New England is, from what I understand, a little bit like agriculture in Norway. It's very small scale, lots of small dairies and things like that. And so our image of farming is very different than the reality in in the American West, as you get to the Midwest and further out. And I went out to Idaho, where most of our potatoes are grown, in a place called the Magic Valley. And I saw a farm that blew my mind. It was so big and so mechanized. It was 35,000 acres, so half that in hectares. Um, It was completely automated. It was divided into crop circles, because it's the desert, right? So it was all irrigation. There were these um, giant crop circles that were like... uh, Because the irrigation is... It's a pivot. Yeah, it's like like the second hand on a clock, and it's going around, and it's putting out water and pesticide and fertilizer. Um, And I forget the size of them, but each one was like 50 acres. Hmm. And... um, and you see these from the, the sky when, you know, when you're flying over the west. And, but on the ground, it was being controlled. The farmer had this, uh, it was like a bunker. It was this room built out of cinder blocks, concrete. And he had um, nine of these circles on every screen. And he had at least nine sets, you know, screens. And he could do everything from in there. And he knew how, whether the crops needed water or fertilizer and everything. And... And he said, well, one of the advantages of farming this way is, uh, you know, I'm spraying really toxic pesticides, so I don't have to expose myself. 
And he was using one pesticide in particular called Monitor to, to, to deal with a uh, purely cosmetic defect in potatoes. Um, and, uh, and he said, this is so toxic that I can't go into my fields for three days after I spray, and even if an irrigation pivot breaks. And anyway, I'm, so I'm learning about this kind of agriculture. I just had no idea. And of course, it's all monoculture. And on the same trip, I, I drove by a feedlot where... Um, uh, Which you have to explain what is. Actually. Yeah, I gather you don't have feedlots. Lucky, lucky you. Um, so feedlots are, are also called uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. Um, and, and they should not be called farms. They are factories. They're animal factories. And where animals live in very close confinement and they need to be given drugs in order to survive, antibiotics, and they're given growth hormones very often, and it's the worst of American agriculture. And it is, um, they're, they're really nightmare places. And um, uh, so, I, I, so I also drove by this cattle feedlot, and that was also mind-blowing, because I had only seen cows on grass. I hadn't seen them standing around in their own manure packed together, eating corn. The way a, you would describe it in the Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah. It was amazing. And this feedlot was so... Um, I was driving through central... down the spine of California through this beautiful desert landscape, very golden hills, and um, all of a sudden there's this stench, this stink. And I was like... And everything looks fine. You know, I look outside. What is smelling hmm. so bad? It smelled like a men's room at a bus station or something. And... Um, And it was three miles before I got to the source of the smell. That's how, that's, it, it, it traveled three miles. And um, so those two scenes made me realize they've revolutionized the way they grow food. Hmm. Nobody's told us this, and nobody really knows about it. And hmm. so that, that really set me on this journey to understand hmm. the food system. I think that this is the question when you come to the point where you have to define food for us. <laughs> you talk about food, and Sonne referred to your your very famous um, uh, food rule, so to say, summed up, uh, which is extended in this one. Food rules, um, but eat eat food and not too much, mostly plants. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to reduce. Th Obviously, that... we should eat food, but I mean, you. Yeah, but but a lot of stuff we're eating is not food. And I, and I call it something else. I call it edible food-like substances. And, uh, you know, the supermarket is full of it now. Um, these are uh, the products of food science. They're often derived from simpler foods. Uh, very often corn or wheat uh, are transformed into these things. Um, they're highly processed. They're often ready to eat. They're carefully engineered to, to press your buttons with lots of salt, fat, and sugar. Um, and they're taking over the diet uh, mm. to a large extent. Um, they're a significant source of calories now in the American diet and, and all over mm. the world. Um, processed food is, is very attractive in many ways. It's convenient. It's uh, remarkably inexpensive given how complicated it is. Um, but part of that is in our country, we subsidize it. We don't subsidize the small farms. We subsidize the big farms. Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a strange idea, um, but our it's what, it's what we've been doing for the last couple of years here as well. Yeah. Well, our That's agricultural policies are designed to make food as cheap as possible, mm. um, and they've so. succeeded in that. Um, Americans spend a very tiny percentage of their income on food, 
And you could argue that's a blessing in some ways, and it certainly is for the poor, but the kinds of food that ends up being the cheapest and most ubiquitous uh, happen to be the least healthy also. Mm-hmm. So that, that haiku um, was the result of a, of a two-year investigation trying to answer a very simple question that I realized that people were confused about. And that was, what should we eat? If we're concerned about our health, what should we eat? And I read reams, I mean, just so many works, papers, books uh, of, of nutrition. I was reading all of nutrition science, figuring the scientists must have figured this out. They must know what we should eat. Um, it turns out they haven't, actually. Um, and could I reduce it all to a manageable Mm. Um, couple words. And at first I thought, well, it's pretty simple. Eat food. That's it. Eat real food. And then I thought, well, there is an issue with quantity. We are eating too much for our own good. As much as we argue about good nutrients and bad nutrients, that's all a way of avoiding talking about calories and the fact that um, in America, people are eating like 300 more calories than they were 20 years ago. I mean, it's a lot more calories. And part of that is because of processed food, uh, which is also designed to not satisfy you, but make you crave. They talk about craveability is the term they use in the industry. They engineer craveability. Um, So I thought I had to deal with that. And then there was the meat question, plants, Mm plant-based diet versus meat. And that was a hard one. And and so I came out in what seems like a kind of wishy-washy place, I didn't say, don't eat meat. I didn't say, eat only plants. I said, mostly plants. Hmm. And and that word, mostly, I think, may have been the most controversial word I've ever published because it pissed off everybody. (laughs) Everybody? (laughs) The vegetarians were like, you know, why aren't you going all the way and celebrating our way of eating? And the meat eaters are like, you've offended meat. Um, But it was... It was true to what I had learned, that um, meat is not evil food. Um, People have been eating it for a very long time. There is a place in the diet for some meat, but we're eating too much of it, too much for the planet and too much for our own health. And that plants are uniquely um, protective uh, for our health um, and much more sustainable as a source of calories. So, So the honest answer was, well, eat mostly plants. Um, so, but that didn't satisfy anybody. So, so anyway, so that was, I boiled it down to that. I think that was about 15 years ago mm-hmm. when I published that, 2008. Um, and I think it's held up pretty well. There's nothing, there's nothing that I would change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that other rule, um, uh, only eat uh, stuff that your grandmother would recognize as recognize food. As food yeah. Right? Which is basically just expanding on the, on the principle yeah, of what well, this food is. So the, this book of rules is divided into three parts, each of which matches eat food, yeah. not too much, mostly plants. And under the eat food, I'm trying to help people get some very simple, um, memorable phrases to help them identify real food and not 
fall for the edible food-like substances. So there are many different ways to do that. One is, don't eat anything you're great... Now it's your great-grandmother. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Grandma. But um, that your great-grandmother would, would not recognize as food. But do I you mean, mean your grandmother or your any, great-grandmother? You know, the, the archetypal, the yeah. Jungian grandmother. Um, it doesn't have to be... I mean, many people come to me and said, my grandmother ate garbage. Um, no, but my, the, the, the grandmother of my children... She was, I mean, talking about my mother now. I mean, she, I'm not going to talk about her cooking. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, that, that's the generation that, uh, to a large extent, uh, messed it up, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I went to And your generation, I mean, to be blunt. Yeah. Uh, it happened a little, well, I guess it was my generation. But, um, but there was, you know, this is the time, this is pre-war, pre-World War II. I mean, the, 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 the golden age of food processing begins after World War II. Basically, the industry was taking the innovations of wartime food for, for soldiers. Um, you know, dehydrated coffee, you know, instant coffee was invented. Um, all, these, all these interesting food science was invented to, to put food in the soldier's um, belly. And they were like, let's see if we can sell uh, the American people on these innovations. And they came up with everything from, you know, cake mixes to TV dinners to, you know, all these kind of cool new food products, uh, which they realized were very profitable because the more you process food, the more, the more valuable. It's very hard to make money selling simple food, you know, as it comes out of the earth. I and mean, farmers will tell you that. Um, but the more steps of processing, the more value you add and the more money you make. And you're starting with very cheap raw ingredients. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, so it really begins then. And it's very interesting. World War II also affected agriculture in a big way. It leads to the industrialization of agriculture. And that grew also out of the war. Um, the, many of the pesticides we use were, uh, were started as nerve gases. Um, mm. They were designed to kill people. And they thought, well, if they kill people at this dose, maybe a little dose will kill insects. Um, and that's why pesticides are mm. bad for us, too. They're designed to be bad for us. Um, mm. And we're not so different than the insects, as it turns out, mm. in terms of our response to these things. And then the fertilizers, which was a big step in changing agriculture, when you move to chemical fertilizers, they came out of the war, too. Um, Uh, ammonium nitrate was, uh, is the ingredient in bombs. And after uh, they, there was a bomb plant uh, in um, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and they realized, well, we're making all this ammonium nitrate. It's, it is a bomb, but it's also a fertilizer. So on a given day, this factory in Muscle Shoals switched over from making bombs to making fertilizers. Hmm. So industrial agriculture is basically, you know, a wartime conversion strategy, both, hmm. you know, at the level of the food and at the hmm. level of the farm. So that's the fateful moment. So, so people who have a memory of food before then, they don't recognize hmm. certain things that we do. And, hmm. and that, you know, the example I use, I don't know if you have um, Gogurt here, but What Gogurt... Gogurt. It's a yogurt that comes in a tube for your kids, you know, mm. and, and the kids just kind of suck it mm. out of this tube. You don't have it. We do, we do. Really we just don't call yogurt. it. But yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We have it, yeah. So, you know, your great grandmother, if you gave her a tube of Gogurt, she would not know how to put it in her body or where to put it in her body. <laughs> so, 
so that's that's what that's what that rule is yeah. about. But there's a whole bunch of others. I mean, don't don't eat foods that have more than uh, five ingredients. Mm. That's you know, and means it's you know very processed. Mm. Um, God, I don't remember mm. the others. <laughs> there's a lot. Okay. There's a bunch of other rules though that that are just kind of algorithms, you know, that you can use yeah. to say is this real food or not. Mm. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's just a, it's a way to to find your way to real food. Mm. Because real food still exists, you can still yeah. find it. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> it's always, I mean, we, we go, we go from, we go from. Uh, it's very easy to go from talking about food in the very like straightforward way. What are we going to eat? To like you do now with, I mean, to the the really really big questions of modernity, right? I mean, I mean, we we talk about food, but we're talking also about division of labor and the alienation. We're talking oh, yeah. about and industrialization and the environment and climate change. I mean, the 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 what's Food is a, is, a, is a wonderful topic. It's one of those topics that you, you pull on one thread and the whole world opens up mm. um, because all the systems that, that, that run our world are implicated in the food system. Um, it is our most consequential, most powerful engagement with the natural world. We change nature more through our eating than anything else we do. If you think about it, I mean, we tend to fix on oil and things like that, but food, with food, we change the way the landscape looks. We've remade the landscape entirely, right? Deforested it and, and put in fields. And um, the balance of species on the planet, you know, the species that we eat have thrived. Uh, cattle and pigs and, and uh, chickens, chickens especially, um, edible grasses, as I mentioned. And yet the species that threaten our food, like wolves, are virtually gone. Mm. So, um, and then food also affects the, the quality of the water. Fertilizer in the water is, is, is a tremendous issue, mm. environmental issue, and of course climate change. Mm. Food, you know, represents, I mean, people argue, but somewhere between 15 and 30 or 40 percent of um, uh, greenhouse gases are produced by the food system. Um, and that includes everything from um, uh, the deforestation to create foods, you know, food lands and um, the, uh, the methane produced by cattle, which is a big contributor, meat production in, in general, mm. uh, and fertilizer, believe it or not. Chemical fertilizer is a, is a tremendous contributor to climate change because that nitrous oxide... Um, ammonium nitrate turns into nitrous oxide once it gets wet if it's not taken up by the plants right away and, ni and nitrous oxide is a very serious potent greenhouse gas so the food system is implicated in um, so many things and in mm. culture of course mm. I mean food is a great defines culture and mm. um, uh, and that's why it was such an exciting topic to be working on mm. and, and continues to be but one of the reasons I don't write about it anymore, or at the time, right now, is it's, it's a funny thing, but I really like writing as an amateur. I really like writing while I'm still learning a subject, and I don't like writing about it when I'm an expert. Mm. And, um, and now I'm a little bit too much of an expert on food. And I just find that once you become an expert, your writing changes and you start lecturing people. And um, I'd much prefer to learn mm. with them and take people on a journey. Mm. So if you read any of my books, I kind of always start out as an idiot and, and move toward a you know, position of greater knowledge and confidence. And so I realized with food, um, it, was, it, was, it, was getting, it was disingenuous. It was coy mm. to suggest I didn't know certain things. Mm. 
But anyway, I'm, but I'm still very engaged, especially on this climate issue. I, I really think that um, since this is the, the great existential crisis of our time, mm. and food is an important part of it, I've done what I can to, to elevate awareness of that mm. because people didn't see it. The fixation was so much on fossil fuels mm. and energy generation. And when, you know, when Al Gore did um, The Inconvenient Truth, which for us was a, a real turning point um, in awareness of, of climate change, and I think it was 96, somewhere in there, he didn't mention agriculture. Not a single mention of agriculture, which mm. is kind of astounding. Um, and I was very heartened to see, uh, earlier this fall, he held a big conference in, at his farm in Tennessee all about he has a farm he has a yeah. farm mm -hmm. and that's actually why he didn't talk about food because his <laughs> farm was very unsustainable for a while as it turns out it was a it was a um cow calf operation and they were selling animals into the feedlot system so i don't think he wanted to call attention to that <laughs> but since then he has completely remade his farm mm -hmm. and it is now what we call a regenerative farm which is a kind of term for agriculture beyond organic, you know, mm. agriculture devoted to soil and sequestering carbon. Like Joel Salatin. Joel, exactly, mm. like Joel Salatin in, in, in mm. my book. And so it, it's, it's quite a show place now, and, and that's one of the reasons he, you know, felt comfortable talking about the issue. And now he's... he's, he's so so the, the profile of the issue has risen quite a bit, yeah. and I'm very excited by that, because I've been talking about it for a long time. Maybe the example of Al Gore answers my next question to some extent. Um, uh, you talk about uh, we talk about climate change and the impact of food. Uh, that's really the main way. One of at least two, maybe one of the two main ways food has been on the on the schedule in Norway in the last half a year, um, following the launch of the Eat mm -hmm. Lancet report, yeah. uh, saying that we should eat no more than I think it's about 60 grams of of uh, animal protein per day. Um, and dramatically changing our food systems globally and talking about a global diet. Uh, and that was very much part of the foundation of the, of the, um, the city council, the new city council that was elected this fall, saying that they're going to start doing vegetarian school food in Oslo. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, well, that depends on it's who It's not going to be popular. No, it's not popular at all. No. Or it's very controversial. Uh, uh, and I would say, on a personal note, I mean, the most disappointing like answer I've heard on that uh, or response has been, "Why is it so such a grave thing? It's just about exchanging the uh, salami on top and the liver pate on top of the bread with some cheese." Uh, saying something about the general state of food culture, also, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is very saddening. Uh, but, well, there's uh, also but there's what, we, what we what we imagine when we talk about school food in Norway is. Yeah, I mean, very, very you couldn't sad. do that. You couldn't yeah. do that in the United States. People would be protesting. Uh, but why do you think food is so such a sensitive issue? Why do you think people become so? Food, food goes right to our identity, and um, food is so primal. And um, and if you mess with people's food, if you appear to be telling them what to eat, um, you uh, you offend them deeply, and you have to be very careful. Uh, how you talk about food um, and the incentives you give people to change, mm. and you—it's very important you not be punitive and that you lead with pleasure. 
I mean, I think that that's a, a very important thing to do, especially with kids. The challenge with doing vegetarian diets for kids is that, uh, oh, there's so many challenges. Um, but first of all, it... It's not to make them eat. Or, what do you mean? What is, no, I mean, uh, that's been one uh, major argument. They're not they're going to stop eating. Well, the kids, kids don't like vegetables unless they're very well cooked. Kids are more sensitive to bitterness than we are. Um, and that's why they, they gravitate away from vegetables sometimes. They have, but if they're cooked well, if they're really fresh, if they're sufficiently sweet, they, they love vegetables. Mm. I mean, if you've ever taken a child into a garden, a vegetable garden, you, you'll see they'll eat broccoli and they'll eat peas and all this kind of stuff because it's so fresh and crisp. And, but... You know how they cook vegetables in most schools. I mean, that's, it's not, it's, it doesn't show vegetables at their best. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's, a, there's a kind of subtler way to do it. Um, I, I think if you look at other cultures, people have prized meat for thousands of years, right? It's, it's, it's a prestigious food. And, um, and, but in many cultures, meat was so expensive and, and rare that you used it in a different way. It became more of a flavoring than, than a chunk of protein in the middle of the plate. And you, you, know, you think of Asian cuisine, you think of Indian cuisine, um, uh, and you're using meat as a, as a flavoring. And there's some meat in it, but it's mostly vegetables. And it probably meets that 60 grams. You know, mm. I'm not sure exactly how much that is. But, um, uh, so it seems to me that without making a showy, we're taking away your meat. You just kind of start changing the menus, and you and you have meat, but you change the emphasis. Mm. Um, that seems to me the mm. the smarter way to go about it. Mm. But it's a bold, it's a very bold move. I mean, we do need to reduce our meat consumption, and um, but you also get, um, uh, you know, th- there's a whole class discussion around food, and and people arguing for changing diet for environmental reasons or aesthetic reasons are perceived as elitist. Mm. And you see Trump uses this all the time. Trump very flagrantly eats junk food. In, um, and most American presidents do. Even Obama, who understood food issues really well, uh, he, didn't, he chose not to do that much about them, but he understood them. Um, he would make sure to be seen eating hamburgers and things like that. Mm. Um, it's politically smart. It's, it's the people's food, you know. And, and that junk food has become the people's food is a really unfortunate development. Um, so I, I think the meat issue has to be handled with a, a great deal of care. But I tend to think, and, and the way I talk about it in Food Rules, is, is um, just get it, you know, the whole idea that you have a giant piece of animal protein in the middle of a plate and some vegetables cowering on the edges, you know, just seems like there's another way to do it. There is for sure, yeah. And other cultures have figured this out. This is not rocket science. Uh, in, in your latest book about food in Cooked, uh, Natural History of Transformation, you point out that cooking is no longer obligatory and that that, that marks a shift in human history, one whose implications were just about beginning to reckon. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the decline of cooking, home cooking, uh, over the last several decades is, is, is a tremendous part of our problem in terms of nutrition um, and that we are outsourcing cooking, this fundamental human activity, um, an activity that, by the way, defined us as human. Um, it really was the discovery, not just of fire, but of cooking specifically, mm. 
that that led to this change in our brain size. I mean, that you know, there, there was this very rapid period of evolution where our um, brains got much bigger and our gut got much smaller. And the reason was that we'd found that if you cook food, instead of eating it raw, you, um, you get more energy from it and you don't use as much energy digesting it. Mm. Um, and, and this has been shown. Like the reason dogs are so obese is, you know, most dogs, at least American dogs, I don't want to offend your dogs, uh, <laughs> is that we feed them essentially cooked food and they're, you know, they should be eating... They should be eating raw food, and then they have the digestive apparatus, and they burn a lot of energy breaking down meat or whatever they're eating. Um, so when we figured this out, um, we got this this boon of calories, you know, mm. this this new amount of energy, and we use that to grow bigger brains because brains are the, the they're the gas guzzlers of your body. They it's only two percent of your body mass, but it takes twenty percent of your energy. They're very mm. expensive to operate, and um, uh, so. But we could we could afford to operate them once we started cooking food. Mm. Now we're still cooking food, but we've outsourced this, you know, really important work to corporations, and they're just doing a shitty job of it. Mm. Um, they just don't cook very well because mm. they're cooking products that need to last, and they have to they have to disguise the fact that they were cooked a long time ago and far away. <laughs> And they do this with chemistry mm. and, and processing. And so, but cooking has other values that I think are really important. I mean, the book is sort of a celebration of cooking. And, um, and going back to the point about meat and changing diets, I didn't want to lecture people about the importance of cooking. I wanted to excite them. And mm. so it's very much of a, you know, I, I'm learning how to cook in this book and learning how to cook. Uh, with fire and with water and with air, baking and fermentation, mm. and, and and I'm apprenticing myself to these these masters in each area and and having a great time. Um, so I was I was hoping to lure people mm. into the kitchen with this, and um, but it's also you know when someone cooks in the household, everybody eats that food, whereas when you let companies cook and you eat processed food, everybody in the family eats something else. You know, and that's and that's that how food is marketed to us. There's food designed for women now, and there's food designed for men, and there's food designed for girls and for boys and different ages, and um, and you see the family meal start to fall apart, mm. or people eat on the run. You know, twenty percent of meals in America are eaten in the car right now, in the automobile. Um, so so cooking knit us together. Now, mm. cooking had problems. I, I don't want to romanticize it because the work was often um, mm. relegated to women and mm. women had to, did most of the cooking. And, um, and that was, uh, you know, it, it, cooking alone, it, mm. it does become drudgery or it can become drudgery. But it's very interesting when femi the feminist revolution begins in the 50s and 60s, um, is when processed food begins. And the assumption is that women seized on processed food because they didn't want to cook, and this got them out of cooking. But of all the household chores, when you surveyed women in the 50s, they liked cooking. Cooking was what they wanted to continue. They wanted to get rid of housework. Mm. Um, and uh, that was not as easily done as getting rid of cooking because you had the industry stepping forward and saying... And also there was, a, there was an argument going on in the 60s. I mean, I, was, I, I witnessed it. Um, 
between men and women as women were entering the workforce about who's going to do childcare, who's going to do cooking, who's going to do cleaning. Mm. And there was a lot of tension between men and women around that issue. And it never got fully negotiated. Um, and what happened instead was the food industry said, stop arguing. We'll do it. We'll take, we'll take this tension away. And, and that was a very powerful market. Very smart move. Very smart move. Um, but they had to push. There was, a, there, there was a period in America, at least, and I'll bet it was true here too, where women resented processed food. There was a story I tell in the book about um, when the first cake mixes were introduced, another wartime innovation in the 1950s. And all you had to do was add water and then mix and put it in the oven and you had a cake. And women rejected this because they would get a compliment at the church supper or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oh, I love your angel food cake. And, and they couldn't take credit for it because they didn't feel like they'd made it. So the companies figured out that instead of using powdered eggs in these mixes, which they were doing, they would call for one real egg to be cracked <laughs> and mixed. So that it resembles cooking. So yeah. it, re it more yeah. closely resembled yeah. cooking. And, and then people were happy to take credit. <laughs> <laughs> more brilliant marketing. Well, I mean, it should be pretty obvious. Like, why we, why do we make cakes and all those kind of pastries and stuff like that? Obviously, the historical reason should be that it's, it's the one of the things that you actually can take credit for. It's like a, like talking about household chores. It's probably the reason why people do all these like embroidery stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, women did that in, in before. I mean, in. Uh, just because it's something that was visible. Well, there was pride. There was pride taken in cooking. And mm. um, uh, yes, and, mm. but you know, people didn't take the same kind of pride in other household chores, and understandably so. Mm. You mentioned um, um, that we started cooking and, and our, our brains expanded, and you, you traced the kind of the. It history. doesn't mean our brains are going to shrink, by the way, now that we've <laughs> stopped, because we're still eating cooked food. Um, uh, Can you, you, you spend quite a bit of time in the book about uh, talking about the cooking hypothesis, um, which, uh, which is um, a theory by yeah. an evolutionary archaeologist or Richard or, Wrangham, um, yeah. describing how we, know, we because we tend to think about food as the thing that makes nature into culture, but following his line of argument, we, it's actually cooking that makes us. Human, rather. Yeah. It did. I, I, I think it's a very persuasive theory. And, um, and he's accumulated some interesting evidence. The fossil record isn't quite there yet. We haven't... Because this has to happen about two million years ago, I think. And we're currently and so at 1.5 or something? Yeah, yeah. And, and they keep moving it back. They're looking for evidence of charred bones and things like that to suggest that they were barbecuing back then. Um, but... Um, But he's done interesting animal experiments to show the different, the different, um, uh, you know, if you, feeding snakes live food versus cooked food, and how they grow more, and how much more energy they have, and um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very persuasive theory. It also, though, cooking changes us socially as well, because um, when you were um, hunting and gathering, um, you would eat where you found the food very often. Um, but once you once you're cooking over a fire, there is you need cooperation to make everything happen. You need um, uh, patience 
So you have to you have to hold off the your hunger or your desire to eat until the food is cooked. Um, and that's a you know restraint is is a fundamental fact of culture that it, culture largely involves restraint of animal impulses. Um, and then you have things happening around the cook fire, um, uh, sharing, taking turns, all these kind of very civilizing things happen um, that that probably weren't happening before that. So it shaped us in that sense too. And it's still shaped. I mean, I think family dinner is, uh, you know, a, a crucial human institution. I mean, if you think about what children learn at a family dinner, um, as opposed to eating by themselves or eating in front of the television set. I mean, it's around that table that we really civilize our children. I mean, we teach them how to take turns. We teach them how to argue without fighting. Um, we teach them how to eat uh, and what is food. I mean, there's so many lessons that are imparted there. Whereas as, 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 as the meal falls apart, or the institution falls apart, the, um, the company is dealing, in a way, directly with your child instead of through you. You're no longer the gatekeeper. And they're sending the messages, oh, this is what food is. This mm. is what you should expect from food. Food mm. is fun. Food is entertainment. Mm. Um, food is sweet. You know, all, all those things. Um, so we give up a lot of, of our parenting um, control when we give up the family dinner. Mm. I mean, I, I really think the family dinner is a cradle of democracy. I mean, it, it's, it's where those civil virtues are taught. And I know, I remember the table, you know, it was during the Vietnam War when I was growing up and, and hearing my parents talk about the news of the day. And um, What other time does the family really get together on a daily basis? It's that, it's that meal. So I, I just think it's critically important and it's in danger now. Mm. There's so much uh, we should talk about here, but uh, it's um, a big topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, but you describe the the mastery of fire, the mastery of cooking liquid in containers, and the mastery of fermentation, or uh, and with bread as a kind of a. Well, bread is fermentation the, also, yeah. but I put that under air, mm. um, since what's exciting about bread is how you take this. I mean, not in this country so much. You, there's less air in your bread, but. Um, uh, <laughs> Not the one I put on. No, the that was spectacular. There. He left a, in my room this beautiful loaf of sourdough bread with this mm. giant airy crumb. Can From, you say? Can you say what bakery it yeah, is? Yeah, it's Illebro. Yes. Yeah. Wow, it's it's fantastic bread. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So I look at I look at the, I got very excited about baking. I think and, it's the highest share of people having eaten Illebro in a room in Oslo ever. <laughs> Um, and fermentation, I did beer and I made yeah. uh, kimchi. I went to South Korea and I learned how to make kimchi. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I fermented. I mean, that was a kind of cooking too, right? Before fire, you could ferment food. And then that, that also made it more edible and, and, and much healthier. And it also allowed you to preserve it through mm. the winter. But do you, I, there's one in, really interesting question that arises from the whole, uh, talking about the evolution of of our of our cooking and our evolution as a species, and that's the the question of flavor. I think, like, I'm to what extent flavor is something we uh, learn, whether it's culture or whether it's it's nature. It's all to say. Yeah, there's. I mean, there are different. I mean, there are certain flavors we're born liking. We have a genetic proclivity for sweetness, and it makes good sense because uh, 
sweetness connotes calories. Mm-hmm. It tends to con- connote safety, too, in nature. Um, there are not a lot of dangerous foods that are sweet, um, whereas bitterness is a learned flavor. We, we're not born liking bitterness and, and mm-hmm. witness children who really don't like bitterness. Um, and bitterness is... Yet it's good for us. I mean, we it, should eat It can bitter. be good or yeah. bad. It mm-hmm. can be both. That's why it mm-hmm. takes some sophistication to navigate the bitter foods, especially mm-hmm. the bitter plants. So the, the, the poisonous alkaloids in many plants are bitter. Mm-hmm. Most alkaloids are bitter. And um, I mean, think coffee and tea are bitter, right? Um, and they have a lot of this alkaloid called caffeine. Um, now, that's a good alkaloid, or we, we think it's a good alkaloid, but there are a lot of others that are poisonous. Mm. So if you're a kid, staying away from uh, bitter is probably a good thing. Mm. Um, there, there are a lot of toxins in food that we develop the ability to detoxify, our livers do. And, um, and it may be that kids, don't, that system isn't as well developed, and that's mm. why they, they tend to stay away. And if, they, they, I, if I remember correctly from my, my, my kids, uh, they were not allowed to eat spinach and kale and stuff like a couple of other of those green vegetables for the first years just because their intestinal system yeah. wasn't and, developed. And also so um, morning sickness well. sometimes is associated, or women react badly when they're carrying a child to, um, to bitter foods too, and mm. that may be to protect the baby. Mm. Um, so, so some... Some flavors, you know, are acquired tastes, as we say, and others we're born liking. Fat, too, we kind of, we have an innate. And, and, and think, about, think about mother's milk. You know, uh, it's, it's fatty and it's sweet. Mm. Um, and so the baby... And, but I think you're right about the fact that they also in, even in mother's milk, there's, there's this enzyme that um, produces umami flavor. Even. Is that right? I, if I remember correctly from your book, oh. and that there I don't remember correctly. No, okay, okay. But then yeah. we we'll, we we'll leave that alone. No, the, the <laughs> cool the cool story about about mother's milk, the discovery that was made recently, is that you know it has a lot of sugar in it, and it has one particular sugar. It's called an oligosaccharide, and um, and like forty percent of of mother's milk consists of this sugar. Hmm. And it turns out, though, it was discovered that babies can't digest it, which is weird. Like, wouldn't evolution, natural selection, should have done away with that? It's you know because it's wasteful. But it, it was recently figured out that oligosaccharides are the preferred food of a kind of bacteria that you need to have in your gut, especially as a baby, mm-hmm. uh, bifida bacteria. And so. We have evolved to produce a food that feeds not only the baby, but feeds the gut microbiome mm-hmm. because that's so important to their health. And, you know, they didn't put this stuff in formula because babies couldn't digest it. Why, why put it in the formula? And now they're starting to because mm-hmm. it's so important. So that was a real education about the importance of the microbiome that we, that, you know, because mother's milk is the... It's the it's the it's the perfect food, literally, because it's it's been designed for this purpose, and not you know most of the foods we eat have been designed for another purpose. Um, so it, it teaches a, us a lot about that. Mm. But do you think there is a case for the argument that is made by some of the fam- most famous and and the greatest chefs we have in Scandinavia, such as uh, our own Espen Holmbang at Mayamo, mm-hmm. the three star restaurant in Oslo, uh, one of the world's fifty best. He has claimed that the neighboring countries in Scandinavia 
uh, have, may have more continental food traditions, than, but Norway has something else, something much more interesting, a history of pain and suffering, arid landscapes, and, um, and uh, in Sweden and Denmark, they have very like uh, overwhelming uh, Christmas food traditions for eating. But in Norway, what do we eat? Salted meat with melted fat and boiled potatoes. <laughs> uh, uh, there's, yeah. Um, and Magnus Nilsson at Fäviken in, uh, in Sweden, he goes even further to say that, that there is a, like a, even, almost an encoded like, preference for like, cured dried animal mm. protein fat in the like, Scandinavian way of... of uh, do you think, th is there a case for that or is it uh, storytelling? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these foods that um, become... Uh, so iconic for a culture are the things that got you through the winter, you know, um, fermented foods, fermented meat too. Um, knowing you had a lot of that in your basement was, I mean, imagine how mm -hmm. secure you would feel, I mean, that you were going to survive, um, even, you know, crop failures. Um, so I think we tend to treasure those, those kind of foods in a certain way, even, even if we're, we get bored with them by the end of the winter. Um, just because they're so tied to our survival. But I don't know. I haven't really thought about that very hard. I'm trying to think what we have similarly. Beef jerky, you know, um, which is dried beef. Um, I don't think it's fermented. I mean, we don't, we don't eat it all year round, though. Yeah, no. I mean, like, uh, like take something like rockfisk, the Norwegian um, fermented fish. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, I mean, there was a recent uh, archaeological article that I thought maybe you find interesting if you don't know about it uh, from Sweden three years ago um, uh, where they identified the, what they claim is the oldest fermentation in the world documented really? 9,200 years ago in, in the eastern coast of Sweden uh, where they actually claim that there was uh, there's evidence that there was a permanent settlement 9,000 years ago uh, not based on other agriculture but on uh, fermented fish Mm -hmm. uh, underground in, I think, what you call pit fermentation in the book. Yeah. Um, they did this in Iceland, too. Mm -hmm. With the shark, yeah? Yeah, I tried it. Really they nasty. Used, but they used, they used that. You, did you enjoy it? No. No. And I don't you know think what? no one does, actually. I, I agree. I, you know, I was in Iceland and, and... I don't think the Icelandics do either. They wanted me to try two things. Smoked puffin, which is a endangered species the, in America. The bird with the... the bird. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and hakarl, they call it. And this is a shark that they bury for a very long time and then excavate and eat. And I noticed something um, as I was choking this down, that um, between every bite, they took a, a shot of schnapps. So you're not savoring the flavor if you're doing that, right? You're covering up the flavor. Or maybe but it's they're just very a, proud of it. Yeah. They are, and, yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I noticed is how many cultures have a ferment that they have this sense of pride about. Um, and it may, it may have to do with the fact that ancestrally it got them through the winter and everything, but everybody else hates it and they love it and it's mm -hmm. defining. It's, it, kimchi is an example. Um, when I, was learn, I went to South Korea to do some research on kimchi and I went to, uh, and it's, it's culturally defining in, in, in Korea. It's a very important part of the identity. I went to uh, the kimchi museum in Seoul, and it turns out there's six kimchi museums in Seoul. 
And they, you know, they have dioramas of women like pounding uh, peppers and, and, uh, and, and beautiful urns that it's made in. And while I was there, these, these troops of kindergarten-aged children came through with their little yellow backpacks and their uniforms. And, and I asked one of the uh, docents at the museum, um, why do you bring children to a kimchi museum? And, uh, and she said, very straight face, children are not born liking kimchi. <laughs> they have to be indoctrinated. <laughs> and that's what these museums exist for. So, so going back to your point about flavor, you know, ferments are, are, are also these acquired tastes, but they mm. become defining. Mm. And so the Icelandic, you know, the Icelanders, you know, want guests to try it, even though they don't like it. Mm. <laughs> it's a rite of passage. <laughs> are you, have you tried Rockfisk? No. I have I some delivered to you <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> but out of the four transformations that you describe in Cooked, uh, you say that the, uh, the one that has engaged you most deeply is fermentation. Why is that? Uh, you know, I've always been interested in transformation. Uh, in a way, all my books are about transformation. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, the transformations that take place in the garden, the trans- transformations that happen in our brains with psychedelics sometimes. And um, fermentation, to me, is the most miraculous transformation. It's done without heat. Um, we're using bacteria uh, to, to do this, work this alchemy. Um, and we turn one thing into another. The idea that you can take this powdered uh, grain um, and with water and a culture of bacteria make this you know, leavened wonder we call bread is... I mean, I bake a lot, and it never ceases to amaze me. It really feels like an alchemy. Um, and what's amazing about it, too, is that um, that transformation is not just aesthetic. It has a, it has a tremendous biological importance. Mm. Um, one of the facts I learned when I was researching bread is that um, if I gave you a sack of flour and you had nothing else to eat, you could not survive eating that flour. But if I gave you the flour and water and a culture, um, a sourdough culture, and you turned that into bread, you could survive on that. Um, So that transformation takes something that is not really a food. I mean, Mm. it's got calories, but it doesn't have what you need, and it's not digestible um, into something that can sustain you. And there goes, just by the sheer amount of lack of time, goes one of the very interesting points I wanted to discuss about, or wanted to ask about. about the, you, claim, you make this claim about bread, and it ref- I mean, reminds us, um, probably many in the room, of the very famous Norwegian porridge battle in the 1800s, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Actually. What is that? A porridge? Bread? No, it's, it was a battle over, over the nutritional value of, oh. uh, of, of, of por- porridge, and there's this very specific practice of, of, of Norwegian uh, women uh, pounding a certain amount of the flour into the porridge at the end of the cooking, hmm. uh, and uh, which was claimed to be not uh, nutritional. I mean, as a waste of nutritional value and of money, and so in the and in the name of science and progress, uh, they were called not to do it. And then they were defended. The women were defended by uh, one of the more like progressive social um, researchers uh, establishing social science, actually. Uh, in 
uh, that they were, they were doing it out of tradition. Uh, and there had to be a reason for it, even though we couldn't prove it. Uh, and I, I don't know, actually, if anyone has uh, actually figured I out... I wonder. I mean, most of those traditions... Uh, well, I shouldn't say most, but many of those traditions turn out to have a, a scientific basis. Mm. I mean, we've been cooking... It's a, cooking is a process of trial and error that's gone on for you know hundreds, thousands of years. And most of the, the things we do turn out to have a, uh, a good reason. I mean, when, when I, studying nutrition, one of the things that really struck me is that um, how often the, the grandmothers got there before the scientists, that they knew somehow that you should eat this with that. Um, what's the antioxidant in tomatoes? Um, Lycopene, thank you. So lycopene, very important antioxidant we get from tomatoes. It's not available to your body unless you have tomatoes with oil. Mm. So, oh, olive oil and tomatoes, what a mm. great idea. Um, you know, and the scientists just figured this out like five years ago. Um, so sometimes the... It's like with samp and beans in South Africa. Yeah, oh yeah, and the, and the, and the way um, cornmeal is prepared in Mexico, um, with lime, um, all these food combinations... Um, and then you have ayahuasca, of course, which is a combination of two plants. How did people figure that out? You need both of them for it to work. Mm. So, you know, culture, history is a very powerful um, source of, of knowledge. And we don't give it enough credit. We, we think science is the... Until science discovers it, it's not true. And, and, and what I saw over and over again that with food... Culture is a fantastic source of wisdom, mm. and, and that's why we, don't, we shouldn't throw out our food mm. cultures without um, a very good reason, because mm. they're not just comfort, they're not just tradition, they're, they're wisdom, wisdom about health. Mm. And then with that comment, you took sides in the Norwegian porridge battle. I did. And, uh, <laughs> see how the newspapers write tomorrow but about let's, that. Uh, yeah, let's but I think the scientists should get to work and try yeah. to figure it out. They should, actually, yeah. No, I, 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 I can very much understand your, um, your fascination with fermentation, especially when you write about it so eloquently, describing sourdough as an ecosystem of endemic fungi and bacteria, uh, hence making, actually baking into an act of environmental activism more or less, because there's actually there's fungi and bacteria that only exists in that dough, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, and I mean, you talk a lot about fermentation as a political act, and even as cooking as a form of resistance. Well, it, I think it is a form of resistance. I mean, I think the path that we're on in so many areas is... Um, is the penetration of private family space by corporations. Um, mm. They want to do everything for us. Um, they want to entertain us. They want to feed us. They want to, you know, heal us. And many of these functions were done without them for a very long time. And, um, and, and we see what happens, what, what accompanies this penetration of these spaces. You know, look what social media is doing to our politics. Mm. Um, and so I think we do need to draw lines around a, a certain sphere and say, no, we're going to do this on our own. Um, it's infantilizing, too. I mean, once you, you know, we lo we're losing the ability to cook because we're not doing it that often. And, and there's a generation that's not learning how to cook. 
Um, and we, we've, we don't, our children don't know how to entertain themselves without mm. screens. Um, so so we, we become less capable mm. and, and we become more specialized. And so we do what we do at work, you know, that one thing we got good at, and then for everything else, we let corporations take care mm. of it. And that didn't used to be the, the way. And there's, I think one of the reasons people you know, like as hobbies, going fishing or hunting or gardening, it's, it's, it's having that sense of competence that you can do something in your own support besides just make money. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, and that's, I, I, that's a very important, um, uh, something very important about modern life that I think, and that's one of the reasons I'm interested in all these, you know, crafts and arts, whatever you call them, these, these activities that... Um, I get enormous satisf- satisfaction in knowing I can do something myself that I can, in a pinch, I can feed myself. I can bake a loaf of bread. And even though it's, it's more ritual than anything for me, I mean, I'm not self-sufficient or anything, but, but keeping those skills alive just makes you feel, especially in the world we're entering, where um, uh, we're all going to have to be more self-reliant. Uh, so, yeah, so it's part of a bigger, a bigger philosophy of life. Definitely, but cooking is part of it. Growing food is part of it. Fermenting things is part of it. Um, and plus, there are just the there. There's pleasure in doing it. Um, there's enormous pleasure in doing it. I agree. I think the audience agrees as well. I think probably people <laughs> are hungry and uh, time for dinner. Time for dinner, probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think we don't have any more time actually. Although okay. I would have loved to continue. Thank you so much. Oh, Michael. thank you. Thank you very thank much, you. Andreas. And thank you. Thank you for coming and listening. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our website. The music is by Apotek.